to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. Imagine this scenario. You are rolled into an operating room in a surgical center for an outpatient elective procedure. But when you wake up, you find that you're not in the surgery center anymore. You're actually in a totally different hospital in an emergency department, and you learn that you nearly died from anesthesia complications. Even worse, you find out that rather than being treated by an anesthesiologist as you thought, you actually received care from a nurse anesthetist working alone. This scenario happened to my guest today, Paul Ombrister, and he is here to share his story. It's a cautionary tale for patients and for physicians involved in the care of surgical patients. Paul, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Paul, when I first heard this story, I was just horrified. This has to be any patient's worst nightmare. So tell me a little bit more about what happened. Yeah, so basically all I remember is, you know, I remember going to sleep like, you you know, I've had general anesthesia numerous times. And, you know, I remember going to sleep and I remember waking up and, and, you know, that was, you know, I have no memory of anything in between that. When I did wake up, I want to correct one thing you said, I did wake up in the specialty hospitals. So I was revived at the specialty hospital before they took me to to a Banner University hospital. So you remember, I remember that though? I do remember. I do remember waking up at the specialty hospital. And one of the reasons I remember that is because I woke up with a tube down my throat. <laughs> oh my <laughs> which God. Is, which is not a very pleasant experience at all. So I regained consciousness um, after they gave me Narcan at the specialty hospital. The the ambulance was already at the specialty hospital, and then they put me in the back of the ambulance and took me to to a university hospital. Uh, I don't remember much. I mean, I don't remember much for the for the first twenty four hours. There were there were bits and pieces that I remember. You know, I was groggy and you know could barely stay awake. Now, what was it? How did you learn about what had actually happened? When I woke up at the specialty hospital, you know, there was a whole bunch of people around me and they said, hey, we, you had some breathing complications and we think it's best that we take you somewhere else to get checked out. So that was, that's when I was put in the back of the ambulance and, and taken to a different facility. I mean, this is when you were already like having a tube down your throat though? So, they, so once I woke up, they, they took the tube out of my throat. Oh, okay. Yeah. So once um, w- once I was awake, I don't believe I was intubated again in the back of the ambulance. But but again, you know, my my memory's uh, pretty pretty foggy. I've got you know little ten second bits of memory, but but most of it I I don't remember. And how did you learn, or what did you learn had actually happened? Well, that that took a while. So obviously. I knew something had happened. As I become more alert over the next 24 hours, you know, when they do a shift change, a nurse change within the hospital, right, I, you know, I, I assume the procedure is a, there's a handoff, right? So there's a little back and forth between the nurses when they change nurses. Um, and, and I got some of that information from there, just listening to them. I got some information so the, so the resident orthopedic surgeon come to visit me the following two days. He, he couldn't really give me any information about, he said, oh, the hip's fine. <laughs> the surgery went fine. Um, and the only information he could give me was he said, well, it looks like you were over-sedated and your heart stopped. So that's the only information that I got 
And it really it took ten days before the hospital reached out to me. So there was no there was no communication from the specialty hospital. There was no phone call to say, "Hey, how you doing?" There was no there were no resources. There was no you know I, I sort of expected there to be some sort of patient advocate person that would reach out to me to see whether I needed anything or you know at least how I was doing. <laughs> Right. And, and um, even greater to do some type of a root cause analysis to make sure that this doesn't happen to someone else. Because I'm looking at a report that you were able to obtain, which is a nursing note from a nurse who assessed you, I guess, when you were taken down to the recovery room. And what it says here is that you arrived in the PACU and that was around 9.31, and it says, upon arrival, I noticed the patient's color was blue and notified the anesthesiologist who was with my patient my concern of patient not breathing adequately. I began to feel for a pulse and noticed the patient was pulseless. I began compressions while the anesthesiologist was managing the patient's airway. Now, you mentioned that you don't think that you actually had an anesthesiologist in charge of your care. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when she says anesthesiologist in that note, she's referring to the CRNA. So everybody's Um, confused. So you thought you had an anesthesiologist. She thought it was an anesthesiologist, but it never was. it, it, It never was. No. There was an anesthesiologist who turned up to my code about a minute and a half after the code. He was part of a different group. So the group that was running, my anesthesia, they don't have physicians on staff. So the, so the way this facility ran its uh, anesthesia that day was there were two groups there. There was a group called um, Camelback Anesthesia, I believe. They had both physician anesthesiologists and CRNAs. The group um, that done my anesthesia was, was a company called Arizona Anesthesia Solutions. They don't have any physicians. Right. So the guy that ended up coming to my code was not even part of, you know, my care, you know, my anesthesia team. He was from a totally different company. The one that was with you, though, initially was the CRNA. And that was the one that was there through your whole anesthesia. Now, let's talk a minute about your feelings on when you had uh, the preoperative assessments, when you were talking to the CRNA, were you under the impression that that was an anesthesiologist, that there would be an anesthesiologist in charge of your care? So no. So he introduced himself as a nurse anesthetist, but this concept is totally foreign to me, right? I, I didn't even know, you know, if this event hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have even known what a CRNA is, Right. So my understanding when when he done my pre-op was simply that, hey, this is like, you know, like a physician's assistant. This is the the nurse anesthetist who's going to be helping the the anesthesiologist. That was the assumption that that I was given, you know, all along. I never, you know, it was never disclosed to me that he was the only person who was going to be looking after my anesthesia care. Right. And, 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 and it's kind of crazy because you said that that group that he worked with was made up of only CRNAs. And yet in the state of Arizona, the law requires that anesthesia be supervised or directed by an anesthesiologist. Uh, did you know that? After the fact that I did, I, I knew that. Um, but going in, I didn't know that. And, and what this hospital is doing is, and, and you know, I've I've had multiple conversations with my actual surgeon. You know, post this event, he was always told that he is not responsible 
for anesthesia during his surgeries. Post-fact, the hospital is telling him (laughs) that he is responsible for anesthesia, which unfortunately resulted in a conflict in his termination just a few weeks ago. I was meant to have my other hip done by him two weeks ago. He was terminated on the Friday because he wouldn't put his hand up and say, yeah, I was the responsible physician. So what you're saying is that there was no anesthesiologist in charge of the CRNA. And instead, when something went wrong, the hospital looked to the operating surgeon and tried to hold him responsible for the supervision of the CRNA's care. And when he said, no, I can't do that. I'm not trained. I'm not an anesthesiologist. They fired him. Correct. Wow. I wonder if surgeons in the state of Arizona are aware that this could happen to them. And, and the funny thing is with the, uh, with the law in Arizona, it requires that the CRNA be supervised by a physician or surgeon. But then there's a safe harbor clause that sort of that says, hey, the physician or surgeon is not liable for any act or admission by the CRNA, right? So it's sort of, it's a little bit toothless. And what the hospitals are relying on is, you know, well, one, they're telling their, their surgeons that they're not responsible when really they are holding them responsible. They want the surgeons to be the, the responsible physician. But, you know, the, 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 what, what the hospitals are doing is they're relying on this safe harbor provision that says, hey, our, our folks can't get in trouble anyways. So what they're, what they're doing is they're, you know, they're essentially staffing surgery rooms with unsupervised CRNAs. Well, that's exactly what they're doing. And I'm looking at Arizona Arizona law that says that a CRNA should be functioning under the direction of and in the presence of a physician or surgeon in connection with the preoperative, intraoperative or postoperative care of the patient. And then they list different settings that it has to be in, which your setting certainly uh, was part of that. And when you go down, you see exactly what you said, that the physician or surgeon is not liable for any act or omission under the CRNA. So what that's saying is the law requires that the CRNA be under supervision, but the CRNA themselves is the only one held responsible, I guess, in a malpractice type of a case. But yet, what about the law? Is there not any type of recourse in, the, in this event? They're actually breaking the law. Right. So they're they're intentionally not providing supervision uh, to that CRNA, which is required in Section A. I would imagine that that's a a financial decision on the part of that organization, wouldn't you? Exactly. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know what the going rate is, but, you know, if you're paying $5,000 a day for an anesthesiologist, you're you're only paying $1,000 a day for a CRNA. Um, You know, I I don't know what those numbers are, but it's obviously cheaper and that's why they do it. And yet I'm guessing that you didn't pay any less money for your anesthesia when it was provided not by a physician. No, I have, you know, my, I have fantastic health insurance. My health insurance covers, um, would have covered the physician, right? But the way I understand it is, you know, that's a, that's a flat fee. So I had my hip replaced, right? So, and again, I'm making numbers up here, but, you know, I think they're pretty close. So the the facility, the hospital would have got forty five thousand dollars flat fee for my hip replacement. How they how they spend that forty five thousand dollars, I guess, is up to them. 
Hmm. Um, and and one of the ways they make money is well, why would we why would we spend five thousand dollars on a on a anesthesiologist when we can spend one thousand dollars on a um, on a CRNA? Well, I'm guessing that your intensive care um, trip probably ended up costing at least as much, if not more, than the whole surgery. Yeah, so I, I I wasn't taken into intensive care, so I didn't end up in an ICU. I I ended up in the emergency department uh, where I stayed for uh, two and a half, three days. Um, oh, they never they just um, kept you in the emergency room the whole time. Yeah, so so it's funny. They I never got admitted to the hospital. There's a there's a little area sort of like observation, <laughs> right? It's admission light. Um, you know, I had my own room and all of that, but it was just right off of the. Of the ER, I never went up to a ward. That's interesting. But, so you were three days in observation in the emergency room. Yeah. Wow. This is just really hard to believe, and it's also shocking that you really haven't been able to get any answers from the organization as far as how this happened, why this happened, how this can be prevented. What do you want to see happen from this? Well, I, I mean, the first, the main thing for me is exposure. Right. I mean, they're obviously breaking the law in order to gain financially. And as as my lawyer has said to me, you know, you're 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 worth a lot less when you're alive, right? So you're you're worth a lot more when you're dead. You know, in in the context of of litigation. But but these, these this just needs to be exposed. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure as you've seen that, that there were two deaths last year or the couple of years ago from a CRNA giving simple dental procedures. And there doesn't seem to be any, the nurses board didn't sanction this person. So, you know, <laughs> there's no teeth. There doesn't seem to be any teeth in the, from the nurses board side of things. There doesn't seem to be any teeth in the uh, enforcement of the actual statute in Arizona. You know, the, the only, the only recourse seems to be, oh, if you die, you get a lot of money. And, and, you know, I, I think they've done the math and, you know, they're willing to take a couple of deaths a year to um, to make more money. Well, it really feels that way. And I think the other thing that's really challenging is here you are, you're a person who basically almost died because of something done wrong, let's just say. And even at a minimum, you just want to say like, hey, this is pretty serious. Uh, I'd like to not die and I'd like other people not to die. So how about you guys look into this and make sure that it doesn't happen again? And it feels like you just reaching out to the proper people, which would be that institution, you're not getting anywhere. So now the next question is, well, what do you do? Do you contact the attorney general? Do you contact the board of nursing? Like, How do you even know where to begin with a situation like this? Yeah, and I don't. I'm just starting that path right now. Um, so I've 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 sent a demand letter. So I, originally I was talking with the with the CEO of the hospital. So it took ten days. So after I left the Banner Hospital, the University Hospital, um, I tried to get in contact with somebody from the Court Institute, which is the specialty hospital that I went to. Uh, and it took ten days to get a response. I was told to call the one eight hundred number. I'd call the one eight hundred number. I'd leave messages. <laughs> Um, and I, and nobody would call me back. So so in about ten days, I got a I got a phone call from um, from the CEO of the hospital, uh, and, and and she was she was nice and cordial and seemed to be quote unquote interested, and, and you know essentially admitted that yes this shouldn't happen. Then I put together you know we were talking about well you don't just get to do this and walk away. 
what does that look like? So I put together a demand letter and and sent that over to the hospital. And as soon as that happened, you know, the hospital stepped back and and now it's just in the hands of their lawyers. So, you know, now it's in a litigation posture. I can't get any information. You know, the lawyer. So, for example, the lawyers. It, it took me just till last week to find out who was running my code. Um, I didn't even know that. I'd asked them half a dozen times, can you tell me who was running my code? And they would just ignore it. I think that there is now supposed to be this like open access where patients are supposed to be able to get their medical records. Has that so that has not been something that's been forthcoming or been no, easy to I, get? I've got my medical records, but uh, that process wasn't made easy by the hospital at all. So yes, I, I have all the medical records, but you know, as I, I think I mentioned to you before, if you look at my code sheet, there's no physician signature on it. <laughs> so there's a section for physician running code. It's blank. Wow. I'm trying to look up a little bit more information about who owns Core Institute. And it looks like they're owned by a company called Healthcare Outcomes Performance Company, also called right. HOPCO Hop- is the abbreviation. Hop-co. And it says yeah. that they're the largest orthopedic value-based care organization in the country. And they have a number of different partners. I was just trying to figure out if this was a for-profit company, a private equity. Do you know anything about that? I, I, I don't know their, um, their corporate status at all. Uh, I assume it's, it's a private company. There was some sort of disclosure about it being the, a physician-owned facility. Um, so there's a clinic that sits off it as well. So I think Hop, Hopco is the umbrella company. And underneath Hopco, you have the hospital uh, you have a different entity, which is also the clinic. So you'll get a different bill when you go into the doctor's office versus, you know, when you have surgery. You know, the other thing that I wanted to say that was, which is bizarre to me, um, the, that nurse's note, the um, the PACU note that you read from the nurse, her, her name is Nurse Freyden. She was also the, <laughs> so she was, she was the PACU nurse. She was also the nurse that gave me CPR. And she was also the nurse that completed my my code sheet. So it seems to me that that the hospital wasn't prepared. That you know they're not prepared for a code. I mean, you can you know I, I I'm no expert in this area, but from what I've read, you should have a you should have a separate and distinct code recorder. So so she was also you can't record the code and be giving CPR at the same time. So, you know, the code sheet is done after the fact. Right. Uh, and, and it's it's messy. It's not signed. It's it's um, it's incorrect. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing. That nurse, Nurse Freyden, she saved your life. And yeah. she's a damn good nurse. I'm just uh, reading this note. I mean, it looks like she was, she, first of all, noticed you were in distress, you know, got the attention of the CRNA, started CPR, did ever, called 911. And then, of course, later on, filled out the paperwork. So, I mean, this person is an unsung hero. I, I hope that she's appreciated, but you're hundred percent right. You can't have operations where people are being, you know, put to sleep and, and, and brought back and not have a proper team there ready to manage any possible emergencies that might arise. Right. And one of the things that I didn't send to you um, or you haven't seen is the note from the, from the CRNA. And, and, and I'll, I'll read it just a little bit out to you here, but it, it goes to show the extent that they're trying to cover this up. So he goes, follow, following extubation, 
Patient was placed on 10 litres per minute of O2 via simple face mask and transported to PACU by CRNA and RN. Plus spontaneous ventilation, plus chest rise, plus verbal response noted during the period of transport. So it's about a it's about a minute from the operating room to the to the PACU. So what he's saying is, I was awake, I was breathing by myself, I was responding to him. Now I don't remember any of that. And then he goes on to say, upon nearing arrival to the PACU, a suspected upper airway obstruction occurred. Uh, the potential for res- residual anesthetic agent combined with the patient's um, uh, apnea likely contributing factors. So essentially what he's saying is, hey, this all happened within, this guy, you know, turned blue and went into cardiac arrest in 10 seconds. And, and when he mentions hap- apnea, is, is he saying like you have a history of sleep apnea or something like that? Is that what he means by that? Yeah, so I do have a history of sleep apnea, and that that's noted on his. So he was aware of my sleep apnea, uh, and that's noted on his um, on his initial you know pre-op paperwork. So from everything that you've gathered from talking to other people, it seems like you had too much anesthetic. Well, that does make sense because you got Narcan, and that reversed it. Right. Uh, although Narcan just reverses narcotics, I don't know how it acts on some of these other anesthetic agents. We'd have to talk with an anesthesiologist, but it definitely seems like you were over-medicated and, and brought down to recovery before you were actually recovered from anesthesia. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I from, from the people that I've spoke to, to, for me to get to the state, and, and I've spoken to a cardiologist, I've spoken to an anesthesiologist, for me to get to the state that I arrived in at the um, at the PACU, that event happened two, three minutes prior to that. The physicians that I've asked this question to have said, you don't turn blue and go into cardiac arrest in 10 seconds. I mean, you can hold your breath for 10 seconds. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. this is not a, this is not a, an event that that happened the way that the CRNA, the CRNA has it. described. Right. But, you know, I'm just so happy and grateful, not only that you're alive, but that you didn't suffer any type of brain injury or, you know, imagine you could have been left in some type of a vegetative state had you been brought back a little bit too late. No, absolutely. And, you know, I do have, I'm so... You know, if you haven't had CPR, I wouldn't recommend it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was in some pretty good pain for about a month around my yeah. chest uh, and my jaw. You know, I have ringing in my ears now, so I'm, I'm I'm getting that checked out. But that, but but you know, there's also the emotional side of things as well. That um, you know, I'm a, I'm a single dad to a 17 year old. So you know that has some that has some lingering side effects as well. You know, having to have conversations with your daughter about, um, hey, if I don't wake up, you know, run outside and call somebody. Uh, you know, conversations that you don't necessarily uh, want to have or need to have without something like this having happened to you. Yeah, it's really traumatic, and I've definitely taken care of patients as a family doctor that have experienced CPR and you know, these very near death experiences, and it leaves a remnant. And some of those patients have had post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, of course, it certainly is going to play into your medical decision-making in the future. And you mentioned that you actually need to have your other hip done. How is this experience going to change the way you're going to approach that? 
Well, uh, you know, good point, because here's what's here's the situation that I'm in now is now I'm informed because I'm informed myself. Uh, I'm not getting my I'm not getting anesthesia from a CRNA ever again. But the problem I'm having now is if you call up a surgery center and go, hey, uh, and, and this has happened to me twice uh, in, the, in the past month, um, I go, hey, I just had my other hip replaced. I know I need this hip replaced. I had a bad experience with the CRNA. You know, I, I went into cardiac arrest, had to be taken. So I want to make sure that, um, that I get a, a, a physician for the procedure. And that is all too hard for them. I mean, they're like, they're not interested. So I, so, you know, I can't get, or it's a challenge for me to get healthcare going forward because, because all of these hospitals are just pushing CRNAs uh, into the operating room. Well, that's exactly the problem that we're seeing and patients are advocating for themselves and they're getting a lot of pushback and they're told no, or they have to go through great lengths to find physician led at a minimum you should have had a physician supervising but you can't even guarantee that with the way things are happening there in Arizona so this is a really serious problem i'm so appreciative to you for talking about it and sharing your experience and hopefully we'll be able to share this information with some of the people in authority so that they can stop these unethical and illegal practices that are possibly going to even kill patients in the future. So thank you so much for being with us and uh, we'll follow up and hear back more from you as you continue your journey of trying to get accountability. Thanks so much for, for having me on. If you'd like more information on this topic, we encourage you to get the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about helping to advocate for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, we encourage you to join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.